Well, good morning and happy new year. Wow. We are starting a new year with a new series looking at the life of King David. And from humble beginnings to shepherd, uh, or as a shepherd, to his rise as king of Israel, um, that rise is pitted with all sorts of scandal, with disappointments, with heartache, and I'm sure broken New Year's resolutions. So we fit right at home. No. But it also included incredible moments of God stepping in to a person's situation to accomplish what seemed impossible. But we know that with God, all things are possible. David's time was very different than our time. They had no cell phones. They had no stained glass. Um, they had no cars. Um, but in fact, David's time was incredibly bloody. It was gruesome. And David lived about a thousand years before Christ was even born. And ancient warfare during those times was indeed gruesome. It, it was indeed bloody. And Hollywood has done an incredible job of giving us movies like Braveheart or Gladiator and, and even a sense from things like The Hobbit um, of what ancient warfare was like. But it doesn't ever quite fully capture what was going on. It can't quite take you to the battlefield. Because when you were on that battlefield, you got to um, see and experience and smell things that you just can't quite capture with the cinematography of Hollywood, with the computer-aided graphics um, that you would get from uh, today's experts. You miss the adrenaline of your own life being on the line as you locked eyes with your opponent who's trying to kill you. You see, today we launch missiles from and fire bullets from afar. We target enemies with drones commanded literally half a world away. We see the enemy through a scope or through a TV screen. But back then, you killed up close. You could smell them. You could look into their eyes. You saw the fear. You saw the aggression. And in some cases, you saw the calm of a stone-cold killer who showed up for work that day. When the battle subsided, you were covered in blood. You couldn't distinguish if it was yours or your enemies, and you began assessing your wounds. And many warriors, as come to find out, would fight with very little clothing on in order to avoid introducing contaminants into their wounds. Though they didn't understand all of the um, aspects of disease and infection, they knew that if a sword drew in dirty fabric into the wound, they'd be fighting another battle for life and limb. If you weren't killed immediately, but you weren't able to walk off the field, you would lie there amongst the other fallen. And it is then that the birds of the air and the beasts of the field would come to feast, sometimes not even waiting for you to pass. How's that for a happy new year? <laughs> Whoa! I don't know, it kind of makes my new year's resolutions feel kind of fluffy. I don't know about yours. We certainly live in different times, don't we? We typically don't have to worry about those kinds of things. But for David and for his comrades, that was a common occurrence. Battles were bloody. Battles were broody, were uh, brutal. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we read, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. 
Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. In verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So Goliath is about nine and a half feet tall, and a weaver's rod was a long, rigid pole, and it was designed to be held in the hand for the purpose of stabbing, not throwing. And with a, a steel point weighing about 15 pounds, put in the hands of a giant, you could do some serious damage. The shield bearer would have been that first line um, in the range, and so Goliath would have been in the second tier. And so with the shield bearer in front of him, he could easily reach over and stab his aggressors. It was a fighting force to be reckoned with. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come, come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all of the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Israel needed a champion. They needed a hero. They looked to their king, and that's where their hope lay. And that's where their problem was. You see, we place our hope in what we depend on. We place our hope in whom we depend on. But what happens when what we put our hope in fails? We're wounded. We're hurt. We become resentful. And the measure of our hope becomes the measure of our disdain. The deeper we trust, the deeper we are hurt when that trust is broken. This is why we have the potential to really resent our parents more so than any other relationship. You don't place your hope in the family across the street, do you? You don't place your hope in the colleague two doors down. No, but growing up, we think our parents are infallible. And then our eyes are opened as time goes on and flaws are revealed. People are not as good as we want them to be, are they? We fail to meet expectations. And oftentimes our expectations are unrealistic that we place on other people. Something always goes wrong. And unmet expectations leads to disappointment and leads to hurt. And Israel had placed its hope in its king. Their king was missing. As Saul slunk back into his tent, Israel's hope and confidence retreated as well. And this stalemate between the Israelites and the Philistines illustrates why God never intended for Israel to have a king in the first place. He didn't want Israel to put their hope in a man. 
God wanted his people to put their hope in him. See, God established Israel as a theocracy, as a nation of God-given laws administered by God-anointed judges. The law was the final authority, not a king, not a pharaoh, not a president, not a person. God established Israel for a higher purpose, As a more formalized nation leaving a life of captivity in Egypt, Moses became their first judge. And this was vastly different than the models of government that they were exposed to during that time. Moses could have easily established himself as their king. He was their hero. He's the one that led them out of of Egypt. Moses was the one that had the power. He had the rod, and God was using him to part the seas and bring about the, bring about the sickness and disease, the plagues of Egypt. But he resisted that temptation. You see, Moses got it. He understood that his hope was in God. And as time went on, though, the people of Israel continued in their insistence. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that Samuel himself gave them a good reason to be insistent. You see, when Samuel grew old, he anointed his sons as Israel's leaders. Verse 3, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. You see, the culture of Israel was so degraded to the point where Samuel's own kids were corrupt, and they were still appointed as leaders of Israel. So this gave fodder for the Israelites. And they said to him, you are old. Ouch. You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us. Such is all the other nations have. The Israelites had been checking their Instagram accounts too much. All the other nations were posting selfies with their king, and Israel wanted to follow the behaviors of others rather than the commands of God. That is a recipe for disaster. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord. It's a good thing to do. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not that they have rejected you, but they have rejected me as their king. You see, Israel failed to realize God was always going to supply them with a king. In fact, it would be the king of kings. Israel lost sight of the promise to be a blessing to the world. And God had a purpose for Israel that extended far beyond Israel. In verse 9, he says, now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And as you read on, it talks about the hard life of people serving a king, the demands that a king will make. Sometimes the best prayers are the ones that are left unanswered, right? (laughs) When we don't get what we want. And we only see that with hindsight. But Israel's determination to have a king would set the stage for one of the most well-documented accounts of ancient literature 
for a particular individual, the rise of King David. What made, what made David so remarkable was that he actually loved the law when other kings would actually despise it. You see, unlike a typical king, David understood that the law came from God. Where David would let the law of God condemn him and shine a light on his flaws. He wouldn't run away from it. Other leaders would try to actually rewrite the laws to avoid exposing their imperfections. They would change the law to fit their agenda, to support their throne. But David always knew that the throne belonged to God. David was convinced that the law of God was given by God and that God, not man, had the final authority. It is this clarity of conviction that made David such a remarkable king that despite all of David's successes, he was never confused about the identity of Israel's true king. We catch a glimpse of this perspective before David was ever on the throne. In fact, as a shepherd, he was far from the throne. In chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, it says, On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. But you jump down to 26 and you see David's response. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine's this Philistine, and removes this disgrace from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David shows up to the battlefield on an errand for dear old dad. He's a shepherd boy, one of eight kids, and he's the fourth one in line. But his older three brothers had gone to fight the Philistines. And dad had sent him on an errand to kind of check in and see how they're doing and bring them some food. But when he arrives, he hears the taunts of Goliath. And he's angered because he had a perspective that differed from King Saul. You see, representational warfare wasn't unheard of in that day. Rather than having thousands of your own countrymen slaughtered in battle, you would pick your Goliath to sacrifice or to defeat your opponent. A nation would send their best warrior, and if they didn't have that standout warrior, then the duty would fall on the king. The Philistines were offering an out for the Israelites. They're trying to give them a pass. They're trying to make it easy. Why have all this gruesome bloodshed? Let's just have one person die, and then we go on about our merry lives. But Saul didn't like the idea of the agreement. He didn't have a Goliath in his ranks, and he was the king. His neck was on the line. There was a lot at stake, not just the nation, but for King Saul personally. But David, on the other hand, didn't like the disrespect the Philistines had for the God of Israel. The one, the true God, the living God. And so where his countrymen were dismayed and terrified, David was offended with a righteous indignation. David's questions pull back the curtain on his worldview. And what 
He asks, what will be done for the person who removes this disgrace from Israel? He asks, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? When you unpack that, you realize that circumcision was a symbol of God's covenant with Israel. Goliath was outside of that covenant. Goliath was outside of God's protection, out of God's promise. In fact, not only was Goliath opposing Israel, but even worse, he was opposing God himself. That's bold. That's outrageous. Now, when you make bold claims, word gets around. And word got back to Saul's tent. And so he summoned David. And Saul, he sized up David with his own eyes. And he still wasn't convinced. You see, David was only 14 years old. He didn't even have a learner's permit. He certainly didn't have battle scars. And Saul had his doubts. Could he rely or entrust the future of the nation of Israel onto a 14-year-old shepherd boy? But David was insistent. He says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine be like one of them. That's bold. But why can he make such a claim? He tells you. It says, because he has defied the armies of the living God. Goliath had postured himself up against God himself. You see, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. How can such a young man make such a bold and outrageous claim? You see, in addition to the narrative that we get of David recorded in the book of 1 Samuel, we also get a glimpse of David's thinking, of his mindset and worldview from his own writings. David wrote many of the Psalms, and he writes in Psalms chapter 25, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. Not in his power or position, not in his possessions or his past successes. He says, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truths and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Show me, teach me, guide me. What king says that? Kings know everything. They don't need guidance. But David knew better. He knew where his hope was. He knew where to place his trust. He was clear-eyed. He was confident. And he was humble. These are all qualities that made him such a great king. You see, David had such clarity that he could walk down the hillside and into the valley of Elah, knowing what, he had, to, what had to be done. David could face a giant with confidence, knowing that he wasn't going down there alone. He could humbly declare that the battle was the Lord's and then kill that Philistine giant. You see, the man or woman whose hope is in the Lord need not fear. 
We don't need to be afraid. David's trust in the Lord, an act of faith, propelled a shepherd boy from obscurity to national hero. David could do what King Saul should have done because David could see what King Saul couldn't. Saul wanted to control those outcomes. He wanted to ensure a victory. But how could he? There are too many variables. He couldn't control them all. He was placing his trust in warcraft and the strength of man rather than the one who controls all those variables, rather than the one who has the whole world in his hands. Saul failed to get this right. And Saul's inability to trust the Lord would ultimately lead to his tragic demise and the removal of his family from the throne of Israel. But we can look to the words of what would be Saul's successor. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. What fears surface when the doctor's report comes in? When a financial statement looks bleak? When a relationship seems irreparable? What fears set in when tragedy strikes or disappointment sets in? How do we respond? What goes through our heart? What goes through our head? Where do you put your trust? Where do you find your hope? If you and I are trying to control outcomes, we're going to miss the mark. We have to have the clarity and the humility of a shepherd boy who became king. We have to put our hope in the king. So let's say this verse together out loud. For some of us, we may need to write this on a note card, post it in our car, post it in our bathroom mirrors, so we start out our days the right way. But it says, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. David's life was truly remarkable, but it wasn't without problems and he wasn't without flaws. He didn't always put his trust in the Lord, but perhaps we'll cover that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Lord, that as we start out 2019, we can start out this year afresh, renewing our trust in you not in the things that we can see, but in the words that we can read in your word, your promises. For you are faithful. You are true to your word. And as David was relying on you to keep your covenant, so do we. For you have made promises to us. And the biggest one you ever made was for the forgiveness of our sins. We're not perfect. And like David, we're flawed. But Lord, our eyes are on you. Help us throughout this year to follow in the footsteps of a great king who followed the ultimate king of kings. Lord, we love you. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. Amen.